From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now here's Lyndall Cooler with this week's message. I want you to read the word with me, okay? I want everyone to read it together. Read this passage with me, Galatians 5.22. Just, if you don't have it in front of you, just look up on the, on the screen. Read it with me. Ready? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Say them again. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Do you know what those really are? They really are the character and nature of God. They're God's attributes. Because God is love, joy, peace, patience. The, uh, the Greek word for kindness. I want to get in on kindness today. Why am I talking about kindness? I don't know. Have you been to a store lately? I have never seen the meanest people in all my life. Have you seen them? I'm like, what happened to Southern hospitality? These mean folk. And you know what? You're mean too. I mean, people's fuse is real short right now. I mean, they have got no patience for anything. And they just blurt out stuff. And you just go, I don't believe I'd have said that if I were you. And they 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 will poke at you to get a rise out of you to get you to say something. And doesn't it feel good to just speak your mind? But doesn't it feel horrible when you and the Holy Ghost get in the car by, by just you and the two of you together after you spoke your mind? <laughs> and the Lord says, why did you say that? I wasn't saying that. The Greek word for kindness is uprightness. It means uprightness. In one's relationships with others. The quality of being helpful, beneficial, goodness, kindness, generosity. That's the meaning of the word kindness. I want to give you a quick uh, illustration. Uh, Think of history, if you will, as one big jigsaw puzzle. The jigsaw, the puzzle depicts all creation as it was intended to be. This puzzle that looks, in fact, exactly like the opening chapter of the Bible. When God said to creation, everything is good. But as soon as the last piece of the puzzle is placed, God breathed into man the breath of life. One of the first things man did was to take a wrecking ball to a completed puzzle. A perfect picture of creation. Sin temporarily shattered God's ideal. But God stepped in and began restoring the puzzle as it was intended to be. Among the puzzle pieces, God is using to, he's using various characteristics of the fruit of the spirit. God, God's creation is not complete without love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, generosity. Today, I want to talk to you a little bit about God's puzzle piece of kindness, kindness, Kindness in itself is good, but we will also see it serves a specific purpose in the restoration of ideal kingdom order. 
We're outside of kingdom order right now. This hatefulness is not the kingdom. And we are children of the king. We are representers of the king. And we are living in the kingdom. Kindness is a critical piece to kingdom order. Kindness can generally be defined as uprightness in one's relationship with others. Let's see how kindness fits into a big picture. The problem is the first missing piece. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Man plants animals and all things that are perfect. They're in harmony. But the harmony would soon be lost. Humanity would choose his own way instead of God's way. Sin would enter the world. And humanity would, from that point, be under the power of sin. The image of God in which man had been created is now subjugated to man's own independent image. We see how it affected humanity in the story of Adam and Eve's sons. In Genesis 4, we read how Cain and Abel, the story goes that Cain was a tiller of the ground and Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Both offered sacrifices to God, but only God only accepted Abel's. Cain was jealous, so Cain killed Abel. One of the pieces that we can see are missing from this picture in the central piece that's missing is kindness. The result of lack of kindness is the termination of the family. A man kills his brother. Look at this passage. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. Because you, judge, you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? That you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume that the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Kindness is a non-negotiable in the Christian life. The most important function of kindness in a believer's life, it's, it's a, I think it's one of the most supreme things. Christian kindness is one of the church, church's greatest apologetics to the world. It's the best representation of Jesus. The church is a group called by God to be a to give a very bittersweet message to the world. The message is that God has preemptively forgiven us of our sins. Everyone now has access through faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing a person can do to preclude him or her from receiving grace from the judge of the universe. That's the sweet part. The bitter part is that we have access to that grace on the other side of repentance. 
The grace doesn't come without repentance. Repentance is the threshold of grace. And the church, you and I, are called to preach both. When grace is preached without repentance, we preach the grace of an unholy God. When repentance is preached without grace, we preach the repentance of an unforgiving God. We must maintain both. So the church is called to deliver this bittersweet message to the world. And the world will not see the immense value in it that we see. They will see more than anything a bunch of Christians telling them to repent and give up their worldly lifestyle. So how are we going to get a hearing with them? Kindness. Kindness. What is it that led us to repentance in the first place? The kindness of God. He was so kind to reach down for me when I couldn't reach for him. Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance of his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So what did it mean for God to be kind to you and I? What was in, what was in the kindness of God that compelled us to repent? I have two observations about God's kindness. Number one, Christian kindness requires forgiveness. At the center of the kindness is humanity not getting what it deserves. Repentance does not happen so that God will forgive us. It happens because God forgave us. Someone asked Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he got saved. And you know what he said? Sometime around 43 AD. (laughs) Forgiveness was extended with the extension of Jesus' arms. True repentance takes place only when one recognized the magnitude of that kindness. A husband and wife get into a fight or intense fellowship. Both parties know they're right, or at least somewhat right. Anybody ever had intense fellowship with your wife or husband? And you know you're partly right. Then finally, one gives in and apologizes, and all of a sudden, the other one admits they were wrong too. What happened? They repented. What was it that led them to repentance? It was not preaching that the other was wrong. And that they needed to change. It was kindness. Let me start by saying my fault is this. I'm sorry. It's hard to be mad to someone repenting. Isn't it hard to be mad at somebody when they're going, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm an idiot. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean for that to come out the way it did. Will you please forgive me? And all of a sudden, Mr. Sold Up kind of gets deflated. Well, I guess I was wrong too. Like we knew that all along. I don't know why you're guessing. We knew that all along. 
When you address people in evangelism to tell them about Jesus, why am I preaching about this? Because we simply must get the harvest in. The hour is so late. If most of you in this room knew how late the hour was, you would not mess around anything in your life you wouldn't be messing around with. We must get the harvest in. The lost must know Jesus. What about this going on in the world? What about that? Who cares? The lost are all I see. Why? Because it's all my Savior sees. When we're going to have a, be evangelist, we have to begin with what Jesus has done regarding his sacrifice rather than what they might have done regarding their sin. For example, if you're going to evangelize to a group of pro-choicers, your first response should not be to tell them that they're all going to hell <laughs> for killing babies. Your first response is to be kind to them, extend the forgiveness that God extends to them in Jesus Christ. Only then will they actually hear what you have to say. Otherwise, you're just clanging a cymbal in their ear. Calling people to repent is not calling the, calling a calling to be unkind. I need to say that again. Calling people to repent is not a calling to be unkind. It's a calling to humbly proclaim the message of forgiveness kindly without which people would be totally devastated. Number two, Christian kindness requires sacrifice. Remember the kindness of God that leads to repentance? For Paul, it's not an abstract idea that simply describes an impersonal God. This is based on what God has done in his relational goodness. This, this is based concretely on what God has done for humanity. While God has done countless things for humanity, for Paul, the most important is clearly what God did on the cross. It was the act of kindness that draws men to him. One of the most remarkable things about the first apostles is that almost all of them, according to Christian tradition, were martyred for their faith. They sacrificed their lives. Reflecting on this, early church father Origen once wrote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he noticed was that when a Christian was murdered it would usually have the opposite fact, effect than what was desired by the state that murdered them. It wasn't like weeding the church out. It was like pouring miracle grow on it. The more they killed, the bigger they got. You have to understand, this weenie American church is about to man up. Because I'm just telling you, friend, you are made for adversity. The Holy Ghost in you is made for adversity. You are strong when you're weak. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord raises up a standard. That standard never gets raised until the flood comes. The power of the Holy Ghost is not trying to find your remote. So you can switch the channel. The power of the Holy Ghost is when the news says everything is going to hell in a handbasket. 
and hopelessness tries to creep into your house and the enemy tries to take your children and he tries to destroy your life and your marriage and tries to cause hopelessness to come over you, that's where the power comes. There's something rises up in you. Just I get a mad anointing. Out of nowhere. I walked through my house the other day and I said, you foul demon. I don't even want to talk to you, but I feel like I need to. I feel like I need to tell you and remind you that you were defeated on Calvary. I think I need to define and remind you that I'm an overcomer by the blood and the word of my testimony. I I need to remind you that, that... I have the spirit of God living in me and I have to remind you that my boys were sealed and they were dedicated to the Lord. And I have to remind you that they will stand in the house of the Lord with tears running down their face. They will worship the Lord. They will prophesy. They will preach the word. They will be. I just want to remind you that there's been way too much prayer. So just... Mess around all you think you may, but I'm telling you the blood of Jesus is against you. His name is against you, and there's no thing you can raise up. Great, See, there's something that adversity will bring out of you that nothing else will. Amen. Come on. The kingdom of God starts rising up in you, and you go, wait, just a cotton picking, excuse me, moment. <laughs> Some may write here, this is not normal, and I'm not accepting it. Do you realize how smart the devil is? He's brilliant. He'll lull you to sleep in abnormality and you'll think it's normal. And when a preacher stands up here or sits down here and preaches to you like this, there's something jarring in your spirit, but something starts going, man, I feel a vibration in my spirit. I got to rise up. Exactly. The, The kindness in action looks very selfless, very sacrificial. The early church fathers were willing to sacrifice their life for the sake of spreading the gospel. Why was it so effective? Because the, follow, the people in the world thought, you know, if they're willing to die for it, they must be telling the truth. They must care deeply for unbelievers if they're willing to have their head chopped off. Here's a question for you. Is your kindness sacrificial? And is it leading people to repentance? Are you sacrificing for others in service of the gospel of Jesus? See, we have tended to think that evangelism is simply telling people about what Jesus has done for them. That's only one part. We've got to both tell it and reflect it. We've got to proclaim it and practice it. Both. Practicing without proclaiming is humanism. And proclaiming without practicing is hypocrisy. So you want to be a humanist or a hypocrite? You must proclaim and practice. If you want people to hear your message, you've got to speak it in words and actions. We have to convince them that Christ's kindness by reflecting his kindness in our own lives. Put it this way. If you could watch your last, let me say this. If you could watch your whole life on mute, what would it communicate to others? Does your life reflect the message it proclaims? On rare occasions, I get upset and act ugly in public. So my wife says. She's always wrong about that. 
My wife, seriously, women are, they, they pay attention to stuff that we men are just oblivious to. Like, and they're noticing all of it, right? My, my wife will say, people are looking at you and they think you're upset with me because of your body language. <laughs> then I go, okay, I'm not upset. <laughs> I mean, you wives told your husband that. They think you're upset by the way you're talking to me. During this time of national crisis, it's easy to look into your own interests instead of others. It's going to be easy to withdraw into selfishness. We've been locked in houses for 15 months, living in our little cocoon with our clicker and our Netflix and our takeout food, never being around others. Withdrawing into selfishness and forgetting that Christians, we have a responsibility to sacrifice for others so we can prove the kindness of God through ours, our kindness. Don't let greed rob you of your ability to demonstrate godly kindness. Greed is the enemy of sacrifice. Hold everything you have loosely, remembering that Christ left his throne in heaven to show you kindness. That he may be asking you to leave your idea of 2.5 children, two-car garage, white picket fence, and able to show others the same. He may be requiring some of us to sacrifice our temporary dreams in order to lead people into eternal reality of the kingdom. I'm closing with this. I've been, I've been, I've been having a, a, a lot of time to read and sit. I'm not a good sitter. I'm a lousy patient. And I'm not good with crutches. But let me tell you something. You get bruises in the, the palm of your hands walking on crutches when you weigh 500 pounds. And I've decided to lose weight because it's a lot harder to move this weight than a little less. And I'm telling you, I, I've been reading everybody. I got to reading Kenneth Hagin the other day. And he was talking about, it was old, old school, old Kenneth Hagin. He said, people ask me how I know that people are spiritual. He said, you can never judge a spiritual person at church. Regardless of how loud they praise and how much they jump up and down or how much they carry on, it is not an indicator of their spirituality. He said, in fact, if you want to know their spirituality, go to their house and see what they have on their television and what they permit in their home, in the secret places of their life. Y'all remember the story of Rahab the harlot? You remember her? Joshua sent two men, and he said, Go into the land, especially Jericho. So they went, and they entered the house of a prostitute. 
good place for ministry, I think. Whose name was Rahab. And they spent the night there. Boy, I'm telling you, there wasn't no religious spirit around there. What would be said today? The king of Jericho was told, some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however, brought them up on the roof and hidden them within the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them. On the way to Jordan as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that dread of you has fallen on us. Oh, I feel that right there. It's time for the nation to dread the church. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord, see, they didn't do it. The Lord dried up the river and of the Red Sea, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And you did, and, and you did, and what you did to the kings of the Amorites. And that you were beyond Jordan and Shiloh and Og, who you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Oh, my Lord. That's why we praise the Lord. Do you know that? We praise the Lord for the victories he's brought us through. Why do we do that? Because when we do, the enemy hears the shout in the people's voice that the Lord God is a mighty deliverer. And it causes them to shake because if he did it there, he'll do it here. My Lord. Hmm. The Lord, your God, is indeed in heaven above and earth below. Now, then since I have dealt with you kindly, look at that. I've dealt kindly with you. Swear by me and by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them. Deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell the, this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. She let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the outer side of the city of wall. And she resided within the wall. She resided within the wall itself. She said to them, go toward the hill country so that the pursuers will not come upon you. Hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go your way. So as you know, this story goes on and on. I don't read all of it. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. When the walls of Jericho fell, 
there was a piece of the wall that didn't fall. It was Rahab's house. Because she had dealt kindly with the men of God, the Lord dealt kindly with her. Verse 23. So the young men who had returned, uh, had been spies, went in and brought Rahab out along with her father, her mother, her brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought all her kindred out and set them aside in the camp of Israel. They burned down the city and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron. They put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute with her family and all that belonged to her, Joshua spared. Her family has lived in Israel ever since. For she hid the messengers. <laughs> What you don't understand about this story, they go, oh, that's nice. A little harlot hides somebody. Isn't that beautiful? No, what you don't understand is this was a turning point for the whole nation of Israel. It was the possession of the promised land that God had given them. It was a major turning point in the history of Israel. Look at this. One act of kindness changed a nation's history. It changed a family's history. One act of kindness. Are you prepared to change the world? So God is putting this puzzle back together, calling the world to repent. And join the family of God. Kindness is not only is not only an integral piece of that puzzle, but it's a fundamental way God is persuading people to repent. We have got a big mess in our nation. What you see in our politicians, the Senate, the House, what you see is absolutely no kindness. None. There's no kindness. Courtesy is gone. Kindness is gone. Rude, self-serving, run over everybody at any expense. Have you been watching the videos of people walking up and just punching old ladies on the street? What's happened? Kindness is gone. How did America get here? Oh, it's pretty simple. When you tell God you don't want him, when you take the Ten Commandments down from any place of prominence, a people don't know what morality is anymore. It becomes, it becomes situational morality. Well, that's my truth, and this is right for the moment. But you see, the Ten Commandments are, are guardrails. They're not restrictions. They're saying, thou shalt love the Lord your God, and him only shalt thou serve. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. See, all of America 40, 50 years ago knew that. But now we don't know that. Prayer left the schools because we were afraid of offending 0.2% of people who weren't Christian. And as a result... 
Morality has been moved out of the public arena and now immorality and chaos have replaced it. Vacuum was created and we began to hate all good things and love all bad things. But we, you and I, are children of the King. And we are here not to attend church alone, but we're here to impose the kingdom of heaven. We're here to say, people, get ready. There's a train coming. You don't need no ticket. You just step on board. We have come with this message that there's a king and there's a kingdom. And he has people that have been born again by the blood of his son. And have been adopted out of hell's orphanage. My, 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 my. And people who were not who are now. And we've clothed ourselves in kindness. We extend the kindness of Jesus to the people lost. We can do this, you know. Because it's who we represent. Just learn. Kindness is the kingdom. It's a central piece. The kingdom doesn't get impre- Im- imposed without kindness. Right. Love, joy, peace, kindness, the attributes of God. I know it's hard, but I'm going to send you with a commission today, and it's this. Can I just, I guess I'll be transparent. I don't, don't ever ask. I usually just do it. I'm, I'm finished. My sermon's over. I've closed my Bible. That's the meaning. It's closed, stacked on top. It's good. Things are looking up for the buffet. Just, just hang in there. Just, just, just hear this one thing. Hear this one thing, and, and I'll let you go. Okay. When you are being mistreated, it is so natural to react to that. You know what I mean? In Ephesians, the Bible talks about a a series of things that happen. And the final one is malice. It says, put away all malice. See, what happens is a progressional thing. When kindness is not exerted, then what happens is you start thinking about what the person did to you. And the next step is you get your feelings hurt. And the next step is you get angry. And the next step is you decide who are they to do that to you. The next step becomes, well, I'm going to do something back to them that will hurt them equally as they have hurt me. That is malice. There's another word for malice. It's called insanity. You will never be able to hurt the person who hurt you enough to compensate for what you've been through. And all that's going to happen to you is you're going to get angry, bitter, and your bitterness and your anger are going to open the windows of your soul and all kinds of demons are going to fly in and out. You're going to take on spirits that you never knew you'd have because you will not let it go. 
That's why we have a kind Lord. And we also have the Lord God Sabaoth who is an avenger. And there's coming a day that he's going to deal with your enemies. Trust me. How do I know that? Because he loves his children. He loves you with a love you have no idea what it is. And he is going to deal. He's going to deal with what's been dealing with you. He's going to put all things under his feet. He already has. But he's going to begin to step into situations. You're going to see things turn around. But if you decide, I'm going to get back at people, you cannot be kind. And if you're not kind, how can you lead people to repentance? Anger will not lead them. Kindness will. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gracechurchnash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.